So I like this thing that uh, Aliyah uses over here. It's probably not on, but he just taps his foot and it goes boom, boom. There it is. I feel like I should use this during the sermon at some point. Yeah, is that what it is? When I want to make a really good point, I'll come over here. I'm thinking about that. We'll see if I can work it in. All right, good to see you today. Uh, kind of a crazy day. We may have people dribbling in as things go along because of all the traffic associated with the university and the, and the game against USC today. So uh, we, will, we will be very gracious and not condemning of people who come in late because that's actually in the text today. So we're going to want to do that. But uh, uh, fun time with the music today. This, was, this is uh, Folk Music Sabbath. You like that? I got two guitars, a mandolin, and a violin. So this is a winner. Um, I'm taking suggestions on names for the band. Uh, so far we have Sabbath Folk, which is not bad, not bad. But anyway, uh, think about that. But yeah, loving this, uh, loving what they put together for us today for our songs. And we look forward to three more that we'll be able to do here in a little bit. Just a couple words on the schedule coming up and, and my particular schedule. Next Sabbath, I'm going to be gone. So Alicia is, has been traveling here, as I mentioned last week, my wife Alicia. She's actually in Newfoundland, Canada right now uh, doing a presentation there. And then she will fly to Florida next week. And I'm going to leave on Tuesday, fly to Florida and meet her and be there with her for just a little over a week. And she's doing an event in Port Charlotte. Uh, then we'll hang out with the family for a little bit. And then I'll come back and she goes on to uh, Marietta, Georgia, the Atlanta area, and has one more event she's doing and then she'll be back after that. But that means I'll be gone next Sabbath. And Dina King will be our speaker next Sabbath. So you want to be here for that. She did such a great job. The last time she spoke, I'll be back on the 14th, and then on the 21st, October 21st, which is one, two, three weeks from now, Pastor Molly will be doing her first sermon as a pastor at this church. So you're definitely going to want to be here for that on that day, and, and I want Molly to come join me here for just a second because I'm going to ask her a couple questions, but while she's coming up, let me finish what we're doing with the schedule November 11, Alicia will be back in town a few weeks by then. Alicia's going to speak on the 11th, and she's going to share with you a story of our experience, an experience we had with our son Nathan, who is the one who has the two daughters. Uh, but uh, uh, something that uh, he went through and we went through uh, some years ago. Um, it's quite a story. So you want to be here for that. December 2, we're planning communion. December 9, Pastor Japheth is going to speak for us. So we got some big things coming up. But a couple questions for Molly. So here we go. Since you got here, you've been investing yourself in understanding where we are with Camp Sanitas in particular, among other things, but in particular. What have you learned so far? Yeah, so... Camp Sanitas, I just learned what that was just a couple months ago when I first got here. So if you don't know what that is, if you're new or visiting, um, it's the Children's Ministries Department of Connect Groups for Kids at every age level that happens 
right after uh, the church service every week downstairs. So anyways, anyways um, what I've discovered or learned, um, it's been so, so fun to go and visit and sit in on every um, connect group and just and get to know each of the teachers and the leaders there. Um, it's been a real blessing just to see how Jesus is being uplifted and experienced at every age level. Um, and yeah, Camp Sanitas is a true, truly like a welcoming and worship-filled experience. Um, just for example, last week, uh, the praise team that was up here and leading out worship then also went down to Camp Sanitas and before we split off into groups, uh, led out worship for the kids. And it was a blast. Like, I was looking around, and I'm like, man, both kids and adults are having a blast worshiping Jesus. And I just thought, um, so really the biggest discovery is that Camp Sanitas um, is a space for kids to experience and meet Jesus on a weekly basis um, in a very welcoming and worship-filled environment. And it takes a tremendous team um, with a lot of intentionality to actually pull something like that off on a weekly basis. So what you see right now is the greatest opportunity down there with what we're doing with that. Yeah, so I mean, uh, really, truly just pouring into and supporting the leaders and the teachers and helping them build upon what already exists. Uh, because what's really cool is with Camp Sanitas, Camp Sanitas, it's not just an opportunity for kids it's really an opportunity for all of Boulder Church because if a, a children's or teens program thrives and grows, the whole church thrives and grows. Why? Because if kids love to go to their space of worship, they're going to bring their entire family um, to that place of worship. If teens love their place of worship, they're going to bring their friends. Um, so it's more than just an opportunity for kids. It truly is an opportunity for Boulder Church as a whole to continue to thrive and grow as well. So what's the need to make that a reality even more than it is even already? Yeah, so um, one of the biggest things I noticed, uh, it's, it takes a lot of people to pull this off every week. Like I said, a tremendous team. And um, it's really cool to meet the team that already exists, they are awesome and they are working their tails off. What I notice is that the people who are pouring into our kids here at Boulder Church, they also, a lot of them are pouring into our kids at the school at Vista Ridge during the week. And to top it all off, they're also pouring into uh, their own kids because they're at home because they're also parents. So um, we are definitely in need of more uh, teachers and assistants. Pretty much, um, if you go to every Connect group, um, I notice that you know each team has about two or three, maybe four for their Connect group, but they're needing anywhere from like five to eight to even 10 per group. And so um, what is the biggest need is skilled and filled men and women of Boulder Church to help serve this area of Camp Sanitas. Um, and it wouldn't be just like we're throwing you in there and like, hey, go teach these kids. We would obviously equip 
and empower and encourage you all along the way. Uh, but that is the biggest need that to beef up and um, kind of build up these teams that already exist. Yeah, it's an interesting point, isn't it? How the, the parents who are in it definitely understand the need and, and are giving themselves to it. But like you said, so many of them are also at Vista Ridge and then the kids at home. It'd be nice if we had more participation even beyond that uh, to help them out. And, and so um, I know that the making an announcement is not the, uh, the best way to try to get you to, to sign up for this or help out. Um, typically, the best way would be for me to come ask you personally. But since I'm new and I'm just getting to know you all, and don't worry, it will happen where I will come to you and ask you. But um, if you are that skilled and filled person that is interested and passionate about pouring into kids and kids ministry, please come find me or somebody else that is a part of Camp Sanitas to get involved. So we mentioned, you mentioned Vista Ridge, that a lot of the people involved here are also involved there, and you've been spending quite a bit of time there as well. What, uh, what's going on there? What are you seeing there? What are the opportunities you see for Vista Ridge, for Boulder Adventist Church, and what are the needs there? Yeah, so it kind of goes both ways. We're um, really involvement and engagement from the Boulder Church there at Vista Ridge, and also um, involvement and engagement from Vista Ridge here at, at Boulder. So take, for example, uh, we're exploring different ways of what it would look like to have a worship experience um, with Boulder Church over at Vista Ridge, whether that looks like a Friday night Vespers. Um, but then take, for example, on the other side, for them being involved here at church, um, October 21st, is when, well, you saw about a month ago or two months ago when school started, the teachers let out in the church service. Well, on October 21st is when the students from Vista Ridge will be leading out in the church service here. So it's super exciting because the students will take on each one of the elements of the church service and they will be leading it out. So I really hope that you guys get to be here for that church service on October 21st. So yeah, that'll be a fun one. That's the week where Molly will be speaking for the first time. And uh, we've been talking about possibilities with that and working with Marcia and it has worked out that uh, we can do some cooperative things on that day. So I'm really looking forward to how that might go and it, it might provide a break for some of the people who are doing things all the time. So that will be very good. All right, anything else you wanna tell us? Um, no, I just, I, I gotta say, I told this to a couple of you the other day, I mean, is with getting to know Camp Sanitas and the leaders, but also other leaders and also just Boulder Church as a whole, um, I was saying each week I am here and I'm like, oh, I can't believe I get to be a pastor at Boulder Church. It has been a true blessing and I can't wait to continue just to get to know each one of you. So, all right, we're glad you're back. So Molly's been away the better part of the last two weeks uh, in, uh, at Union College in Nebraska doing her uh, MAP Min program. You couldn't come up with anything scarier than that, could you? It's an MA pastoral ministry uh, degree that uh, you can work on while you're, while you're in the field and while you're working. So uh, she was there for a couple weeks of classes, but came home each weekend 
to be here with us during this time. So glad she's back, and I'll bet you're glad to, to not be going over there and be able to be here for some. So, all right, very good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for the opportunities that you give to us. We pray, Lord, that we will continue uh, to see see what you have set before us, and we will receive it and continue to move forward um, to your larger purpose. Um, Lord, now as we reflect on your word today, I pray, Lord, that your spirit will be with us, will speak to us, and will help us to take on kind of a challenging thing. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we're continuing today with this slow walk in the book of Luke, and particularly, this has been a very slow walk in the portion of Luke that is a part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, it's kind of interesting in Luke, if you actually go to chapter 12, there's a little more of Sermon on the Mount type material there as well, but, but specifically, um, what we've been looking at is, is very much like it kind of started with a Beatitudes-like section, and a lot of these things you'll find in the book of Matthew. And, and so we're trying to work our way through these things because, because Jesus throws off a lot of statements here, and it's easy to just kind of blow through it and not really process it. But these are very challenging statements that he says. And, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago with a message entitled Reversals, where one of the things that comes out of that is there is what we like to think Scripture is telling us, and then there is what it's actually saying. And sometimes what it's actually saying is not what makes us feel good. For example, it says, blessed are the poor. And we say, yay. And then it's like, but wait a minute, are we poor? Certainly not compared to most of the world. So maybe that one is not the one that applies to us. Instead, maybe it's the other thing he says where he says, woe to the rich. And we think, yay, they get what's coming to them. And then we realize, wait a minute, that's not us, is it? We're not the ones who have plenty, but then are not really giving with it. Or are we? I suggested to you a troubling thesis on that day, and it was this. It was not without reason that God made our lives difficult, because in our fallen condition, the greatest dangers to our righteousness, faithfulness, and spirituality are wealth, comfort, and ease. The very things we think we're working for, we're praying for, we're hoping for, may in fact be the very things that would put us most at risk. It's a troubling thought. And we could probably throw another concept in there as well that puts us in danger, and that is when we are too wise in our own eyes, when we become so fond of our own way of thinking that it can't be changed. And then last Sabbath, last Sabbath, we read this text. Luke 6, verse 35. 
But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Okay, so all of that... That's not something I'm nat naturally nor rationally inclined to be. I'm not naturally inclined to love my enemies. I'm not naturally inclined to lend without expectation. And in fairness, I'm not rationally inclined to do it either. Because my enemies are my enemies. Why would I love them? And if I'm lending something, why would I not expect it back? But here's the problem. I'm also convicted that these words are true. I'm disinclined in my own mind, but I'm convicted in my heart that I ought to be living that way. That's not fun. I hate when that happens. I hate when my head says one thing and my heart says another. Well, maybe today will be easier. Let's see what we think. On the face of it, our text for today suggests a fairly simple concept. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So, all of that. Simple concept, really. But let me ask you, how's it going? In some ways, what I just read you is the practical reward mechanism for the golden rule, which was a concept that we saw earlier in a message a few weeks ago, Luke 6, verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. The golden rule, you remember that. Why? Why would I do to others as I want them to do to me? Well, most importantly, I hope your reasoning would be because it's the right thing to do. And in truth, as often as possible, we ought to be motivated by something being the right way to do. We do it because it's the right thing to do. But I understand sometimes we need a boost. I'm not always able to do the right thing just because it is. Sometimes I need a boost. It's the old carrot and stick idea. You know about that, right? This idea of, of the carrot and the stick. The carrot is the implied reward if you will pursue a certain course. And the idea of it was you, you hold a carrot out in front of some beast who's not able to make a good decision, which is us sometimes, right? You hold out something in front of them and they will respond and do what you want them to do in the context of reward. Sometimes we need that. There's also the stick. 
You can get on the other end of the beast if you want it to go and smack it on the backside, and sometimes that'll get it moving. And sometimes it takes that to get us moving. Now, ideally, we always do the right thing because it's right. Practically, sometimes we need some other things. And so, think about this passage in the context of what I'm saying to you. Luke chapter 6, verse 37. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Is that a carrot or a stick? Well, I guess in one sense, it depends on how you're looking at it. Uh, if you're enticed to not be smacked by the stick, I guess you could call it a carrot. But, but the idea of me avoiding being judgmental so that people are not judgmental with me, I, I guess that's more of a, of a stick kind of thing there. I'm watching out for that. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Okay, motivation. Don't do it so that it doesn't happen. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Maybe that's a real carrot there. That would, that would be great. There's a lot of things I'd like to be forgiven for. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. I think that's a, that's a strong carrot statement right there that says the more generous you are, the more generosity you will see. But now, first of all, let me, let me clarify a certain point here. Is this a guarantee? Okay, let me say it this way. Across the whole of your life, absolutely. If you avoid being judgmental, you will not experience so much judgment. If you avoid being condemning, you will not be condemned. If you're forgiving, you will more likely see forgiveness. If you're generous, you will see more. Individual cases, I can't promise it. I can't promise it. But I do want to suggest to you that it is true over the course. And even in the situations where it doesn't happen, it never hurts. It never hurts to do the right thing. And now it is at this point that I run the risk of stepping on some toes. And to that end, let me offer this caveat. It is possible that you are, in fact, the most unfairly treated person in the world. And that nothing that happens to you is your fault in any way. It's possible. And if that is you, I am very sorry for you because that is very hard. But now let's set you aside and talk to the rest of us. And let me tell you how it is for me. I have proven the principle. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you many times in my life. One of the fun things about my personality type, and it's fun in quotes. One of the fun things about my personality type is that I tend to have limited respect for positional authority. And I have this deep-seated belief that the only people worthy of my respect are the ones who earn it according to my standard of what it means to earn respect. And I could almost make the case that this is very noble of me and discerning 
and probably the best way any of us could be, but in making that case, I'd be going against Scripture. Romans 13, verse 1, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Okay, okay, but wait, context, right? We've got to put all these things in context. Yes, absolutely, context. But then Paul was talking about the Roman government here, so there's that. Maybe we need to, yeah. Romans 13, 7, pay to all that is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed. Here we go. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Yeah, those last two, not a strength. Not, not a strength for me. And then there's this one, which comes way too close to home for me. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12 we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I have tried very hard to be good at this. And my record is at best mixed. You see, I used to be so smart. It was nothing short of a travesty that everybody didn't immediately recognize the genius in my words and ideas and begin implementing them. But there were a few things that I didn't realize along the way. First of all, I didn't know everything. And I didn't have the perspective on issues that others who were my leaders did. And second, the things that I believed were very helpful inputs were, in fact, provoking people. And that it was important that I had a good relationship with those people and not just provoking them. You see, I got a bit judgy sometimes. Like the time the conference leadership didn't pick me for a certain assignment and I wrote an allegory exposing their hypocrisy and duplicity and sent it to them. It was good writing, but a very dumb move. And I was a bit condemning at times, like the time I told the division president at a meeting of church planters that he was demonstrating very poor leadership in a recent action he and others had taken an action that I'm afraid time has proven he was right and I was wrong. Due to his graciousness, that one didn't cost me like it should have. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying there aren't times when we have to speak truth to power, but the manner in which we speak matters. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1 I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. But it doesn't stop there. With complete patience and teaching. 
See, I wanted to, I wanted to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great power and authority. But that's not the right spirit. That doesn't get, that doesn't get things done. And this is a major problem that we have with the echo chamber world that we're living in now, where, where we get to pick and choose, or, or AI chooses for us, what information we receive and from what source that information comes. Sometimes I'm a little troubled by AI and what it thinks I will like. Sometimes what it suggests on my... Facebook page or, or, or on YouTube based on something I've done somehow comes up and I'm like, really? You think I want that? One of the fascinating ones right now is, is that Facebook is pretty sure I'm into powwows. So I get these popping up on my screen, the, the, the Native American dances and stuff, and yeah, I guess I am because I watch it every time. It's like, all right, yeah, why not? Guess I'm into powwows. I had no idea. But, but see, we're in this weird world where it, it brings us, and the net effect is that it tends to cause us to speak with great provocative boldness in the hearing of everybody who already agrees with us. But by so doing, we guarantee that anyone who disagrees with us, number one, will never hear it. Or number two, if they do, they will only become more entrenched in their already contrary belief system. We're not interacting. We've got these little bubbles that we're, we're talking to ourselves in. Luke 6, verse 37, judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. I think in general, I'm not terrible at the forgive and be forgiven admonition, though it was recently pointed out to me that my approach to forgiveness has not always been fully redemptive. I have at times been a bit too rigorous with the idea of boundaries. I will forgive, but you will, always, you will also always have to stay on the other side of the boundary. The other side of the line, which in many situations is as it needs to be. There are scenarios where you have to draw that line and keep that person over there. But there are also some other situations where doing so is an example of not actually being forgiven or forgiving. And my comparison on it is this. If the Lord drew as hard of boundaries as I do, I would have definitely earned my place on the outside. So I have to challenge myself there. Luke 6:38 Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be poured into your lap. I, I love the, the excessive language there, the excessive description. If you ever try to, to you know, so you know, you buy your, your box of cereal and you get it home, and have you ever read on the side of it, sold by weight, not volume? You ever notice that? You ever read that line? That's because as it goes through its packaging and travels to where you get it and you get it off the shelf and you bring it home, 
it settles down into the package. That bag may have been full when they filled it, but as it shakes, it settles down. What, what this is saying is, not only will I give you that initial part, but after it settles down, I'm going to put more on top of it, and I'm going to keep dumping more on top of it until it overflows. He's saying if you are generous, you will experience generosity. I have a bit of a mixed record on this one as well. I confessed last Sabbath how I don't like to give to random people who beg. I don't know your story. I don't know what's going on. I don't want to enable your behavior. This is how I justify myself. I don't like to do that. But on the other hand, I will give pretty much anything I have to family. Clothes, cars, cash, concern, you got it. And many things to my friends, which I guess would cause Matthew to suggest that I am at least as gracious as a tax collector or a Gentile. Or as Luke says, at least as good as a sinner. Luke 6, 32, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to, do, to you? For even sinners do that. So yay, I guess. I'm as good as a tax collector. Woo! I mean, I'm not worse. But you know what? Enough about me. We've been talking about me this whole time. Enough about me. What about you? And here's the risk of toe-stepping. Is it possible, based on the text, that if you always feel like everyone is judging you, could it possibly be because you're just a little judgy yourself? Based on the text. And if you feel like you're always being condemned, could there be anything to the notion that maybe you get a bit condemning at times as well and people really don't feel very safe with you and might just be lashing back? And if it feels like no one ever gives you a break, is it a possible that you don't give many breaks either? The problem is this. We either accept the principle behind Jesus' words or we don't. What is the principle? Luke 6, 38. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. That's the principle. And if we do accept that this principle could in fact be true, we have to at least entertain the thought that some of what comes on us is actually our fault. We have to own that. Now, don't immediately accuse me of victim blaming. I have so far only used myself as an example of this concept being true. And I have offered as a possibility the idea that you are, in fact, the most unfairly treated person in the world, and nothing that happens to you is your fault in any way. So you can still grab that if you want. 
If that is you, ignore everything I'm saying. But if it is not you, then maybe the passage I have read you today can become a cheat code in your life going forward. You know what a cheat code is, right? It's inside information on how the game works. And when you learn that little cheat code of how the game works, you just do that thing and suddenly you get a different result than you were getting. I may have given you a cheat code on living. Don't be so judgy. People won't be so judgy with you. Don't be so condemning. People won't be so condemning with you. Be a little more forgiving. People be a little more forgiving with you. Give a little more. Receive a little more. Now, to the end that I have already risked offending everyone, let me take it one step further. Are you a giver to the church? Do you believe that what this passage says applies to your generosity and gifts to the church? So, full disclosure here, as I got to this point in the sermon, was working on it, to prevent hypocrisy, I went immediately to my bank website and scheduled my tithe and offering payments for this month because I got paid on the 27th and it's right in here and I didn't want to be standing up here talking about this and know that I still hadn't done that for this month. So, full disclosure, do I believe that this passage applies to gifts given to the church? Yes, I do. For God has been irrationally generous with me and my family through the years, even when we've not been fully wise in a financial way. Somehow we raised a family of four, or almost. Ariel's still there, but almost. And we never went hungry except on purpose. Now, I don't know how we did it. Somehow. But you've heard the Malachi passage before, Malachi 3, verse 10. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. We'll just stick with the carrot part of this particular passage. I believe this is true. I believe that text to be true because it has proven true in my own life. And I challenge you all to put God to the test on this, not just because it enables us as a church to do so much more, but because it's the right thing to do. And because God promises to bless generous givers with generosity. Well, let's go beyond this specific case. So we invite the band to come back up here. We're going to sing our songs here in a second. Let's go beyond any specific cases here, and let's just do a hypothetical. If you always got the same to you that you give to others, both good and bad, would you be net ahead or net behind? If what came back to you was what you gave, both in terms of judgment, condemning, forgiveness, generosity, 
Would you be net ahead or net behind? Here's what I want to suggest for us. Let's be non-judgy, non-condemning, forgiving, generous do-gooders who go around being awesome all the time. Let's not just aim for net ahead. Let's aim for overwhelmingly ahead. You know, like Jesus. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. So maybe let's live with this same attitude. As though God does not send us into the world to condemn the world, but rather that the world could be saved as we have opportunity to share the grace that is ours in Jesus with a world that can be pretty graceless sometimes. Why would we want to do that? Well, first of all, it's the right thing to do. And secondly, because Jesus is worthy of the very best life we could live for him.